Welcome to the Writing Westward podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today we speak with Professor Monica Munoz-Martinez about her award-winning book, The Injustice Never Leaves You, Anti-Mexican Violence in Texas. Let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast and who produces it. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. For better or worse, it's a one-man operation with me, Brennan Rensink, playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, and everything else. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history at BYU, neither of which roles trained me for the current task. But I do have a lot of fun doing this because I'm passionate about better understanding the North American West, the region I have called home for most of my life. In each Writing Westward episode, I have a conversation with writers of the region, academics, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, anyone authoring anything about the West. My goal is that these conversations will spark listeners' curiosity to dig in a bit more themselves and think differently about the peoples, histories, environments, ideas, and identities that make up the North American West or that we ascribe to the region. Please leave reviews or comments on whatever platform you are listening and let me know if we're succeeding. For updates or communication, please follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find all episodes on our website, writingwestward.org, or listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or most all major podcast distribution platforms, apps, and services. To learn more about the BYU Red Center, stay tuned, and at the end of the episode, I'll offer some additional information about our projects, programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research, and events. Find the center at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. For more regular updates, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at BYU Red Center. Now, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. When Americans think of race or racial violence, they often think of the troubling histories African Americans experienced in colonial America with slavery, or perhaps post-emancipation discrimination and segregation, or later the civil rights movement, and ongoing struggles today with police violence, voter suppression, and so forth. These are essential narratives in American history, but our nation's dark past and present with racial violence does not end with African Americans. Today, there are many scholars working through the histories of other peoples of color to understand the racial violence in their pasts and present. In the early 20th century, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans living in Texas were victim to years of state-sanctioned violence. Not just intimidation or beatings or other forms of minor violence, but hundreds of murders and even massacres, many perpetrated by state police forces. Our guest today, Monica Munoz-Martinez, uncovers these shocking histories from the early 20th century, but she does not end there. She traces their decades-long legacies into the present, and this linking of past and present racial violence is profound. It challenges us to rethink our pasts and demands that we take action in the present. Dr. Martinez is the Stanley J. Bernstein Assistant Professor of American Studies at Brown University. She's an award-winning author and an engaged public historian. She's the primary investigator for Mapping Violence, a digital project that documents histories of racial violence in Texas, and a founding member of Refusing to Forget, a nonprofit organization that calls for a public reckoning with racial violence in Texas. Today, we talk about her recent book, The Injustice Never Leaves You, Anti-Mexican Violence in Texas, published by Harvard University Press in 2018. 
It was awarded the Lawrence Levine Award from the Organization of American Historians, the Coffee Western History Prize, and the Robert G. Atherin Award from the Western History Association, the Best Nonfiction Book Award from the National Association for Chicano Chicana Studies, the TCU Texas Book Award, and was a finalist for the Frederick Jackson Turner Award from the Organization of American Historians. Professor Monica Martinez, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. Your book has been on my radar since it won um, a lot of awards uh, just recently, so congrats on that. Thank you. Thank you. It was a very difficult book for me to read. I often like to prepare and read for the podcast in a single day. I'll sit down and just spend a whole day with a book. But I had to take a lot of breaks uh, with what you wrote, the historical ideas of state-sponsored violence. That's actually what got me into history as a kid. I learned about the Holocaust, and that's what turned me on to history. And then I learned about the Sand Creek Massacre in college, and that's what turned me to Western history. Mm -hmm. But it's something that reading or in a film like Mississippi Burning or something, I find it really hard to watch that kind of stuff and to read this. So your work on 20th century state-sponsored lynchings, uh, murders, massacres of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in Texas was, I almost got sick to my stomach a couple of times, I have to say. I don't know if others have had that response as well. Maybe it's just me. No, well, I think, um, I mean, it's certainly, well, thank you for reading the book. I mean, I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time. But I do, I do understand, especially for people who research histories of violence, um, state-sanctioned violence, um, that that we also become saturated with some of these histories in a way that makes it difficult to consume. Um, so certainly, you know, being more uh, sensitive to graphic depictions of violence in film um, or in literature um, and in, in historical records uh, is something that I, that I can understand deeply. Um, it's also something that has shaped, you know, my approach to, to writing this history, to thinking about why it's so important to learn from, um, but also to think about the different ways that we can tell the history. So, mm -hmm. you know, the book is one way, thinking about public history and uh, the public humanities, whether it's museum exhibitions or historical markers, um, finding different ways to introduce this history um, is quite important. And to, to, to really build a conversation with historians of racial violence or people who are writing about sexual violence, um, to have conversations, critical conversations about the ethics of how we do this work, yeah. the, the politics and the ethics of recovering these histories of violence, but then also how we bring them into the public. So, you know, it's a book that um, when I've given academic talks, um, you know, that's a very different audience from talking about these histories in public. And so, you know, speaking at a book festival, um, I, I, you know, I find myself uh, for people who haven't read the book, you know, saying things like, you know, read this during the day or take your time you know, moving through it uh, because it is it, some of the, the histories themselves are deeply unsettling. But I think what is also unsettling about the history is the lasting injustice. Yeah. So, you know, it isn't just the, 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 the terror and the acts of brutality, um, but also 
the ongoing pain and suffering by communities and by generations of families um, that is so deeply unsettling. It's interesting. You'd think that with some other things, we get desensitized. There's lots of talk about violent movies and video games, you know, and, and studies show, you know, that we do sometimes in various ways get desensitized to things. But I find the more that I study these kinds of histories, the more sensitive I get to them. It doesn't get right. easier, um, which uh, makes it difficult, you know, to do research or to study. But that's actually the kind of sensitivity that we want the public to gain themselves, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. You know, and I, I, I don't think, maybe not everybody agrees. Um, you know, certainly when I was writing the book, there were a few readers or advisors along the way, you know, that sort of encouraged me uh, to have more grit, <laughs> more gore, mm. you know, uh, to sort of model some of the writing after people like Cormac McCarthy. And oh, I, wow. yeah, yeah. And I just, I, I recoiled. So it's not the, you know, the idea is not to cover the brutality, but it's always to ask and to think of, you know, for in my, in my research, I'm always trying to center, um, that this is a recovery of lost humanity, yeah. right? That there are victims whose um, lives, you know, who were criminalized in in life and in death, um, families who sought justice, uh, who faced intimidation themselves and suffered from um, violence themselves, and that the work for bringing these histories into public uh, to public audiences requires that we also try to show people as human. Um, and so that means paying attention to the lives that they lived um, before they were interrupted by violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and by showing how their loss shaped communities for generations. And so I think that's, you know, if you focus, if, if you create these sensational depictions of violence, um, it can be, uh, it can be another act of dehumanization. Yeah. Um, but I also think, you know, when it, when it, um, in terms of, of the, the research, the recovery itself, you know, something that I tell students who are doing this kind of work is that there's also a different experience with different forms of, of archival documents. And so, um, there are newspaper accounts, for example, that are sensational and that are graphic and that are really filled with, you know, hate speech, Mm -hmm. um, and so reading those kinds of documents can have a particular, take a particular toll. Um, and we have to be judicious in deciding what kinds of quotes to include from those, um, both to make a point about, you know, not to, to, to again, hide uh, the ways in which the, some of these acts of racial violence were celebrated, but also to just, you know, be selective <laughs> with how much space on a page we give to those voices. Yeah. Um, but also that there's other... Or, you know, there are oral histories or accounts by Spanish language journalists or, uh, you know, members of the NAACP that give different accounts of the same event that uh, that are speaking about an event as um, as a, a as a tragedy, um, as an immoral act. And so there's ways of of, I think, uh, making space for those competing ideas uh, to, to be considered by readers, but also in a way that, that gives, uh, researchers or students, um, who may feel <laughs> like it, you know, overwhelmed at, at different moments of the reading, uh, some, uh, 
a different voice to hold on to. I've I've struggled with this a lot. I've been giving a lot of book talks you know, over the last year and I have this whole section where I have all this information about Yaqui Indians being uh, exterminated and then de- deported and enslaved uh, in the Yucatan. And, you know, the, the stories are, are are horrific. And every time I've kind of gotten to that portion in my planned remarks, I, I almost always skip over it huh. because it feels a little... It feels gratuitous a little uh-huh. and voyeuristic a little bit yep. exploitative almost to I don't know it's been it's been difficult but I like what you say in that if showing the context and showing these people's lives before these violent moments and kind of laying out a longer narrative into which these hyper violent moments occur it does humanize them more and it doesn't seem as gratuitous then I like that idea. Yeah. I think it's also, you know, it's, it's also for me, I think about it a lot for teaching. So I think there were moments, certainly before um, the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, um, where, you know, some of the, the teaching of histories of racial violence, there wasn't a, an ongoing conversation, um, you know, debates about Confederate monuments or how we remember things like the Civil War or slavery, misremember the history mm-hmm. of slavery, genocide and colonization. You know, we weren't having active conversations on, on a national level or, or by the press or, you know, by the president. Um, yeah. But historical so, memory now, it seems to be a concept yeah. that people are engaging with a little bit more than they used to. I think so. I think so. But, you know, even, but but before we were doing that, you know, I think that there were some approaches to teaching these histories that, that really favored showing brutal, you know, graphic photographs and trying to prove, you know, that, that slavery was wrong or that lynchings took place. And so I really have felt a shift even over the past, you know, 12 years in the way that I, that I teach the histories, because there has been a, a, you know, some advances in public understandings or, or willingness to confront these challenging histories. Um, but also because I think that as a public, you know, there are so many graphic representations and videos and photographs of things like police shootings or children in, you know, detention prisons, you know, across the country and especially along the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and so I think that that within this current context, you know, speaking to uh, histories of brutality or racial violence of the past, um, I think that the public audiences have more of a, a sort of baseline for being able to comprehend that in a way that I think maybe 20 years ago it was a it was a harder conversation. I think it makes us a, a timely book, and we've seen kind of a real explosion in books that are integrating historical memory and the politics of historical memory uh, as as large portions of of their projects. I think it's really valuable. I mean, you write at towards the end of the book that the lessons of the past, when forgotten, have devastating consequences. And I would hope that the public is in increasingly a better and better place to understand why, um, what those devastating consequences are, and then why we need to really dig in and engage in very uncomfortable ways. I hope so. I mean, I think especially for the histories of Latino populations in the United States, we have a long way to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just so much um, that people don't know about the history of the U.S.-Mexico border, for example, or the history of, you know, the colonization and conquest of the West. Um, 
and so so much I think of 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 and, and certainly about these histories of racial violence that that Mexican Americans, you know, people with American citizenship have been denied their civil rights, um, have been victims of discrimination, Jim Crow style laws, um, disenfranchisement, but also racial violence. Um, most people don't know that history at all. And so what it means is that then when we have an event, a tragic event, you know, like the massacre in El Paso, um, that took place in, in 2019, the summer of 2019, um, that means, you know, that the consequences then are that, you know, journalists don't know how to place this in a historical context. Um, residents don't know how to place it. And so, so I think we have as historians, a lot of work to do, um, as historians of the West, but of his, as historians of the border and immigration, um, to be writing and speaking to, other academics to advance the field, but also to, to inform and shape public understandings of the past and current uh, realities. Yeah. Of one of the previous episodes we did was with Beth Lou Williams about mm -hmm. her book, The Chinese Must Go. And I had a very similar takeaway. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so I actually knew a lot of that history. I had read a lot of that stuff, but the way in which she framed it as racial violence. Right. And often we think of racial violence, we think of African-American violence, Jim Crow South, slavery, but we don't read the Mexican-American experience, Asian-American experience, and others in that same context of racial violence. So you're right, when something happens today, journalists and the rest of us, uh, we need to understand the box that we can put it in, and it is racial violence often. Um, and that really changes the way that we act, interact with these kinds of issues in the present. That's right. And and to come back to your point about state-sanctioned violence, right, that this is... Um, you know, I think even people who understand or, or are, are learning the histories of anti-black violence, you know, it's, it's, um, easier for people to condemn, uh, mob violence or vigilante violence and say, you know, lynchings are wrong. Um, it's much harder, much more complicated when the aggressors or the antagonists are, are state police officers or yeah. U.S. soldiers or sheriffs or judges. And so I think also for the histories of, when we think about racial violence that it, it and state-sanctioned violence, um, it really broadens not just who the victims are, but who, who the aggressors are. And then it raises a whole set of questions about how we not only confront the past, but what does, um, you know, what does reckoning with the past look like? And, and that's, I think, when it gets... Um, complicated for both states, communities, uh, lo local residents to 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 want to engage in those conversations. And I, I don't want to go f too far down this rabbit hole, but I also find that as a nation, we seem to be more able to um, talk about the injustices of slavery, for instance, because as a nation, we somehow feel that we, we've atoned for that, right? Uh, we emancipated slaves. Uh, there is the civil rights movement. And so the nation, in some ways, I think, is willing to talk about that because we feel better about it. But when it comes to uh, issues in Native America, uh, with Mexican-Americans, with others, for which there hasn't been kind of a large national atonement for those sins of our past, uh, we get much more, much more uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and yeah. then especially, especially then when it's, uh, I mean, you know, well, the Confederacy and it was Confederate soldiers and maybe we're okay saying that's you know that wasn't okay it's a lot more comfortable to talk about the state police in your local town who maybe you are some of your ancestors and 
never, never fa faced any, you know, official sanction or dismissal or prosecution. That's much more uncomfortable for people to confront. Yeah. I mean, I would say we still have a long way to go <laughs> in, in, in public understandings, having a, a, a dynamic understanding of the long legacy and consequences of slavery. But, at, but we're at least at a point where, where most people would say slavery was wrong. Yeah. Um, I think mm -hmm. that when we think about histories of native genocide or histories of Chinese exclusion or mob violence targeting, you know, you know, Asian immigrants in the West, um, or anti-Mexican violence, you know, most people still hold on to the myths, uh, the frontier myths. Um, yep. And so it's, it's confronting, it's not just recovering histories, but it's unsettling and trying to, to get people to think critically about, you know, the heroes that they've praised and celebrated um, in movies and in literature and, um, and to, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it really, it really asks them to rethink what they know about U.S. history more broadly. Well, let's get into your book a little bit. It's divided roughly into two parts, the first revolving around a series of these violent events, and then the second half thinking about the aftermath and the decades that followed and how those violent events were addressed or not, how they were forgotten, and in some cases how they were even commemorated and celebrated, and eventually how uh, recent groups have been uh, challenging them, as we said, and trying to disrupt these mythologized uh, histories. And the, the three big events, and you, there's a lot of violent events that you talk about, but the main, three main ones are a 1910 lynching uh, and uh, a burning, actually mm -hmm. burning at the stake, um, which we use the broad term lynching uh, for as well. Um, a 1915 double murder by the Texas Rangers, and then a 1910 massacre, all of which were perpetrated either by state police, the Texas Rangers, um, or with their approval or within the context of some kind of state sanction. Uh, so I'm curious if we could, if you could talk a little bit about kind of the broad terms, the sequence of events that uh, Mexican nationals or uh, Mexican Americans in South Texas what were the sequence of events that happened in their lives that led to and then that followed some of these violent events? Mm -hmm. Well, there's, you know, it's important to remember the longer history of anti-Mexican violence. And so, you know, most people forget about the history of the U.S.-Mexico War, um, which leads to the United States acquiring, you know, in 1848, half of Mexico's territory. So, you know, not only does that reshape uh, literally the, the map of the United States, um, but it creates this moment in which as a, um, you know, their, con their congressmen and the media and public is trying, is asking questions about, you know, what, what does it mean to acquire this territory with these Mexicans living there? Um, and so there's a longer history of, of trying to place and exclude Mexicans who are granted citizenship um, by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, but, but perpetually casting them as foreign and not deserving of the protections of that citizenship. Um, and so it manifests in, in different ways. Um, you know, there's efforts in Cal from California all the way to Texas to displace Mexicans from having economic, cultural, and political influence. So there's efforts to, you know, remove Mexicans from being a landowning class um, to stop 
uh, Mexicans from participating in elections or holding public office. Um, and in Texas in the early 20th century, even the intimidation of Mexican Americans who were police officers or uh, elected officials. Um, and so this is really a history of colonization and settler colonialism, um, of trying to displace uh, an existing group um, through Anglo migration by instituting Jim Crow style laws um, and using violence as a way of enforcing these new racial hierarchies. Um, so, you know, if we look at the history of lynchings, when we, when we consider anti-Mexican violence, um, you know, uh, Bill Kerrigan and Clive Webb, their book Forgotten Dead, you know, have documented over 500 uh, lynchings of, of uh, that took place between 1848, roughly, and well into the, the early 20th century. Um, if we look at Texas, just between 1910 and 1920, and we broaden our understanding of racial violence to include police violence or state-sanctioned violence, um, you know, the, the numbers of victims soars. And so historians estimate that just in that decade, that hundreds of American citizens and Mexican nationals uh, were murdered by vigilantes U.S. soldiers, local law enforcement, and the state police. And so it becomes this era in the early 20th century where citizenship, uh, class, gender, social status, social status didn't protect people from, didn't protect ethnic Mexicans from racial violence. Um, and so it's uh, an era between 1910 and 1920 that, that people described as La Matanza, you know, this era of massacre. Um, others described it as a as a race war, yeah. um, which, you know, again, sort of can confuse people to think that uh, that this was a, an equal battle. <laughs> but, but actually, if you know, if you look at examples like the Boibanee massacre, um, you know, this was state police and local residents just massacring communities. And it's important to, in this broader context, because as these things were happening, and then in the years that followed, uh, the state of Texas and others often uh, justified this, saying, you know, this was in the context of a very violent era on the border, the Mexican Revolution is going on, and often the justifications of the state-sponsored violence was saying, well, it was in response to that, so it was justified. But when you zoom out, you also realize, well, these very same things actually in various forms have been happening for decades and decades before that as well. So it wasn't just in the context of the Mexican Revolution unfolding across the border. Right. Well, there's there's a lot of political, there's a lot of anti-Mexican rhetoric that is used by both politicians, but also by the media to stoke fear. And so what you have is the the representations of all Mexicans, you know, people, you know, what you would describe today as racial profiling. You know, if you looked Mexican, you were considered a potential bandit or a potential revolutionary or a potential murderer. And so what that means is that, you know, people were denied due process. Um, and, and you know, the, the threat of the revolution, the Mexican revolution crossing over into the United States from different accounts, you know, by whether they were U.S. soldiers or American diplomats, you know, uh, in Mexico saying, you know, this is, this is really not a threat. <laughs> you know, this is being overblown. Um, but there were calls to militarize the border. And so what you see is not only the 
what you see is the development of this anti-Mexican rhetoric, these racist depictions that then are used to try to justify the, the massacres or the, the police murders. Um, but you also see that the border itself, the U.S.-Mexico border, is being called on by politicians as a place that needs to be a, di- a dividing line. And so border communities, people that lived in places like Brownsville, um, at, you know, the southern tip of Texas with their neighbors in Matamoros, you know, in Mexico, some people owned property on both sides of the border or had a home on one side and a business on the other. And so these calls, you know, these depictions of the border as this dangerous place, this place that needed to be policed and militarized, um, it was also an effort to disrupt these communities um, and to create a, a harder boundary. Um, and and in, in large part, that is also called on by new Anglo residents who are uh, who want to be able to control this region. Um, and so those efforts, again, to displace uh, a current existing community, people who are thriving in this border region, um, it, it becomes a, a part of their effort to to embrace these kinds of, you know, if there if there is a raid, for example, um, or there are very few cases during this era, actually, of Anglos being uh, killed or murdered. Um, but if but if that did take place, you know, it became a source of public calls for for more policing. Um, and of course, you know, the way that I think about it, too, is um, if we think about the history of lynchings of African-Americans uh, and the ways in which, you know, racist depictions of African-Americans were used to justify lynchings. Um, but that is a practice that was used by some politicians in Texas to try to make sense of what was taking place along the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and so you see that in some of their their own investigations and testimonies uh, where they say, look, you know, we don't, we don't like the lynch law, uh, but we understand it. If, you know, uh, if there's a, a, a horrific crime against, you know, a white woman, we understand then why a mob would, would lynch somebody. Um, and they say, you know, this is sort of similar to what's happening in South Texas. Of course, we don't want police to commit murder, but, uh, you know, Mexicans are so violent and so unpredictable. You almost, need to shoot them on site. And, and there were, uh, they, do. <laughs> they, they do. And there were congressmen who actually testified to say, you know, we do need to shoot Mexicans on site. Um, they can't be trusted. And so that also shaped public opinion. People who, uh, were reading about the violence across the country, uh, who'd never, or people just in Dallas, for example, who'd never been to the border or never met a Mexican, you know, this is how they were learning about uh, who these people were. It was a moment mm-hmm. of, of racial formation. And then, I mean, you bring up later in the book, people are putting these things on postcards, pictures that, I mean, you said, it, I think you used the word commodifying Mexican corpses as they, they put these photographs of these Mexican bodies in the bushes out in the desert. Um, and then you send it to a loved one or something, I guess. Yeah, so there, there were actually photographers who traveled down to the border uh, to take pictures of the Mexican Revolution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, they would set up their cameras on, 
you know, crowds would gather on the tops of hotels in El Paso, for example, to watch the battles across the border, across the border, uh, or to take pictures of what was taking place in Mexico. But then they would turn their cameras to South Texas or to West Texas and, and take pictures of dead bodies there. And, and yes, absolutely. They, um, there were photographers who said, you know, the, the more gore, the better these postcards sell. And it was a lot of some of their biggest uh, consumers were U.S. soldiers who were stationed Interesting. in South Texas to train using the U.S. Uh, in military technology, learning uh, how to use trench warfare, learning how to use new machine guns uh, before they were deployed for World War One. And they're the ones that are sending a lot of them are buying these postcards and sending them home saying, you know, hey, the weather's fine here, mom. I'm OK. So <laughs> just the backdrop of my life in West Texas Um, or, you know, but, but, but we have to think about these photographs also in, in conversation, you know, they are part of this era of the use of photography to capture the brutality, but also to intimidate, right. As, as lynching photographs did. Uh, Because the message goes out. I was actually really interested through all these cases, kind of the lessons learned by the Mexican, Mexican American communities after a violent event, and then the lessons that the Anglo communities learn as these events occur, no one is prosecuted, it's chalked up to, you know, they were Mexican bandits. Talk to us a little bit about kind of the messaging that goes out when, not just when violence happens, but then when violence is condoned and maybe even celebrated. What does that send out to these different populations? Yeah, well, you know, I I mean, I think to the, the case of the double murder of Jesus Bazan and Antonio Longoria, you know, they were both also landowners. Um, in, in that case, you know, they had Ameri- claims to American citizenship. Um, and the widow of Epigmenia Bazan, the widow of Jesus Bazan, you know, was asked um, by friends and relatives, you know, what are you going to do to seek justice? And, you know, her response was, why make more orphans? Um, it was an era, 1915, where the common fra- a common phrase was, you don't buy from the husband, you buy from the widow. And so she understood um, that to ask for the local sheriff, who had a reputation for also murdering Mexicans, um, that to ask him to investigate the death of her husband and her son-in-law uh, would actually um, could potentially just make her a target and also her other sons. Yeah. Um, and so for the... Bodvinid Massacre, it's a, it's a different case where, you know, there were landowning residents, um, the Manuel, uh, excuse me, the, the um, Flores family, for example, uh, but these were Mexican nationals. And so they actually had more recourse. And one of the, the sort of lessons that people, I think, uh, have forgotten is that actually in this era, if you had... If you were a Mexican national with Mexican citizenship, there were more avenues for judicial recourse than if you were an American citizen. So, uh, the general general claims commission, they yeah, could call so on international court. They could call on international yeah. court proceedings, but also they could turn to Mexican diplomats mm-hmm. uh, to to then called for investigations or called for prosecutions. Um, and so they had other advocates. And so there are cases where Mexican nationals were issued death certificates, for example, where if they had been American citizens, um, you know, they very likely wouldn't have been if there wasn't somebody pushing for um, this sort of 
these records to be kept um, and for investigations to take place. Um, and so the, so actually the, the, uh, the widows and some of the survivors of the Bolivian massacre do file a claim against the U.S.-Mexico government charging with three different charges, but one of them is denial of justice uh, because the Texas Rangers, the local residents, the people who were, who, who later reported what they did, um, that they were never prosecuted. And so uh, it's one, there are other cases that I write about in which widows and children and surviving family members do do win financial indemnities from the U.S. government. Um, in this case, the claim was never heard before the tribunal uh, closed. And it's shocking to us, you know, you your book moves us through a lot of court proceedings and court records and testimonies. And in some of these cases, they built up thousands of pages of transcripts of testimonies from all sides, and there was really no contesting what had happened in many of these cases. Yes, the Texas Rangers did murder these two men, shot them in the back of the head in cold blood. And in many cases, the facts of the case weren't really disputed, or the facts of the act of violence weren't disputed, but yet nothing's done. Well, it's also complicated um, for different cases, uh, depending on, on who was who was the aggressor, um, especially for Texas Rangers, uh, like Captain Ransom, for example, or um, uh, you know, people like James Monroe Fox. You know, some of these uh, state police officers had bloody reputations before they were recruited to be state police officers, to be in the Texas Rangers. And so on the one hand, they were... Um, you know, this is state-sanctioned violence in its most concrete form, right? that you're recruiting mm -hmm. people who have these bloody reputations. Um, but also, you know, governors uh, giving their pardoning power and saying, you know, we will, we will pardon um, any Texas Rangers or people who, who are prosecuted. Um, so not only is, is it known that this kinds of violence is taking place, that Texas Rangers are using uh, revenge by proxy, uh, police, policing methods. You know, if you're in the area of any sort of raid and you look Mexican, you're very likely going to be arrested and, and disappeared. Um, or that Texas Rangers and local police officers regularly arrested people, you know, put, took them into police custody and then shot them, um, on isolated roads, you know, allegedly in transport to, to, um, a local jail or a county jail. Um, or so, allowed for the person to be pulled out of a jail. Exactly, yeah. And then burned in the street. Right, so local law enforcement that didn't protect people from, from mobs. Yeah. Um, so there's all of these different ways in which when we think about state-sanctioned violence, how it, how it actually um, manifested in daily life. But, but certainly when you have Texas governors and state senators and state representatives calling for Texas Rangers to clean, quote unquote, clean up the mess, clean up the nest, you know, with Mexican yeah. bandits. Um, it, it sent a very clear signal uh, to Mexicans of their vulnerability, but also to uh, vigilantes and local law enforcement of the kinds of impunity that they were going to enjoy. Maybe we can pivot a little bit here. I think some of this may sound familiar in some ways to the Jim Crow South. Um, there's, there are a lot of, of similarities in how suspicion and violence was used to keep African-Americans subservient and to keep them in certain roles. And 
so forth. What is very unique in this Texas case is at the time and then the decades since, the kind of the lionization, the, the hero mythology and the celebration, which has now been given to the perpetrators, which is not, I don't think, analogous to what has happened with our views of the Jim Crow South. So maybe we can pivot a little bit and talk about some of your later chapters and how Texas has really built an identity on celebrating the Texas Rangers mm -hmm. uh, in various ways. I think the most just jaw-dropping example, uh, you opened one of your chapters with a vignette about walking into a Dairy Queen in in South Texas. Do you want to share with us, uh, I mean, maybe you got a blizzard and uh, uh, what, what else did you find there? Yeah, well, that's that's certainly why you go to a Dairy Queen, isn't it? <laughs> for for yeah. fast food, for some ice cream. Um, but, you know, Sabinal, Texas is a small rural community in uh, in South Texas. And it's the Dairy Queen there is actually one where I had frequently uh, stopped as as growing up living in, in Uvalde, Texas, you know, mm -hmm. trips to San Antonio, either on the way to San Antonio or on the way back with my family would frequently stop um, in Sabinal. And so on one research trip, actually, when I was driving back to Uvalde, uh, I stopped at this Dairy Queen in Sabinal to get an iced tea. It was like pretty hot. And um, what I found inside was a photographic exhibit honoring uh, a company of Texas Rangers that was stationed in Sabinal in this, during this era. And so there's photographs, uh, you know, historical photographs, um, portraits, you know, that were hand drawn by local resident um, Jim Ryan, who had actually curated this installation. Um, so what you would anticipate being on the walls of a Dairy Queen in a small town, you know, is normally photographs of the football team or <laughs> the football schedule. Um, and in this, it was really this. But even if it stopped there and it was some historic photographs of some, here's some Texas Rangers, here they are in their uniforms, here's that that would be one thing, but that's not all that the exhibit included, right? No. So it included, you know, as by the in the back of the restaurant, you know, near the one of the exits, there were uh, two photographs of a lynching, and so you know the photographs, um, you know, one of them has a, a group of of men, um, you know, with the inscription, you know, ready for the hanging, and the photograph next to it, you know, included. Uh, showed uh, uh, a man suspended by his neck um, and being hanged from uh, a roof. And so, you know, it's it's this, this was actually one of the moments where I realized, okay, I've, I not only have to write a history of the racial violence, but I actually have to engage why it is that we don't remember this history, how it's been suppressed, um, how it's been celebrated and misremembered, but then also how... Uh, local residents have been contesting this, these accounts. Um, and it was just, it was jaw dropping to be in a place where you would think about just having ice cream um, with your family and to actually see these casual displays of violence without historical context, without any sort of captioning. Um, and so that was, that was one of these moments where you realize that these histories are continuing to shape social relationships and social dynamics, and they can be used to intimidate people and to send a clear sign of what kinds of histories people think are funny or people think should be celebrated. 
Um, and those photographs are, are no longer up um, in that Dairy Queen. Um, but it but it certainly was this. It's I think it's a moment that encapsulates how urgent it is that we participate in thinking about uh, the memory of this period. So when I think about the injustices that took place, you know, there's the injustices of the brutality of the racial violence of different cases, different acts of a massacre or of a lynching or of a murder. Um, then there's the injustices that families and witnesses uh, felt when they saw nobody being prosecuted or worse, they saw people celebrated for their acts of brutality. But then there's also the ongoing injustice, you know, when people see that insensitive displays like that um, or celebrations of, of Texas Rangers who have these really bloody reputations um, and who committed some horrific acts when we see their celebrations in film or in media or in museums or in Dairy Queens, um, that that continues to, to cause harm and um, it's an injustice. Kind of the casual nature of that is what I find so disturbing and that yeah, a casual non-contextualized display of a murder Maybe, yeah, maybe in a museum you might expect to see that, but not in a Dairy Queen, and that that was deemed as okay, I think is very telling. Yeah, of how far we have to go, yeah. <laughs> you know, certainly. I yeah. mean, I think, I think too, when people, um, you know, but I'll also say that, you know, I've seen photographs or posters of, um, of people being hanged, you know, in, in shops in Louisiana, even in Providence, Rhode Island, you know, that say things like we don't call, we don't call 911. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is, I think also, especially particularly about the West, there is this idea of this frontier bravado that has been embraced by different gun enthusiasts or, um, or just everyday people who think, you know, this is a part of our of our history that we want to be tough <laughs> on crime and we can defend ourselves um, and cross us at your own risk. But there's uh, very racial lines to who can and who cannot invoke that. Absolutely. Western frontier bravado, just absolutely. like there was in the 19 teens, you know, we're in South Texas. Absolutely. And it, it's so coded. Um, and so there's people, but, but people, you know, when I interviewed or I, I asked, you know, two Mexican, young Mexican, Mexican American women who were working at Dairy Queen that day, you know, about who put the photographs up, who I could talk to to ask some questions, you know, they said very clearly, like, we don't, we don't like to look at those pictures. We, we don't like to take out the trash because we have to look at those wow. pictures. And so it also is a reminder that, you know, this is a, you know, in South Texas, it's still majority mexican-american um and so these kinds of displays uh weigh and, and you know you can think about communities where there's mexican-americans still have not had a majority of you know city council representation or school board representation um and so there are uses of these histories um that that remind people of of the racial hierarchy and the social control um, that, that you can place in a much broader history of what people would think about uh, racial discrimination and segregation, how it works in the Jim Crow South. It's all these um, these subtle, implicit reminders that there is a racial hierarchy, or there was a racial hierarchy, 
but the fact that we can still display this or celebrate these things means that it is still here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's a warning. But what are some of the groups, and, you know, we're quickly running out of time, but uh, some of the groups who are really wrestling with this and having a reckoning with this history, um, could you tell us about some of the work that various, um, I mean, not necessarily the historians, activists, community members, and others are engaging in to try to address these things and bring them out to the public, and then especially to form some kind of productive um, outcome what is what's what do we what do we get out of this after we after we engage yeah well certainly I'll say you know the reason why we know or I was able to write about many of the cases that I write about are either because they were families who at the time insisted on preserving records and keeping records or filing lawsuits or testifying in public um, there were journalists there were politicians you know people who who made record of what was taking place. Actually, a, a quick side question. Out of those, you say over the decade, like three to 500 maybe were for, for It's hard to tell. I mean, that's part of the recovery work that is still uh -huh. ongoing is actually to get a, a, try to have a concrete number. Yeah. But out of that, out of that number, mm -hmm. roughly what percentage do we have documentation where people involved actually did go and testify or did press charges? Oh, that's and, hard. I mean, my assumption would be that it's a fairly low number and that for the majority, we we simply don't have good documentation and records. Is that a correct assumption? Well, there's certainly, there are records, for example, by state police officers that will say something to the effect of, you know, shot Mexican bandit for attempted or, you know, attempting to escape arrest. So there are moments in the archive where you can collect numbers of these kinds of cases, but people in those records go unidentified. There were also testimonies that we have access to where a loved one or a witness, you know, testified to a murder that they saw take place. That's um, a very different kind of document. That's, that's kind of what I'm curious, like yeah, what percentage has those kinds of perspectives? A few. I mean, we're finding more and more cases. And what I'm, I'm working with a group of, of research students at Brown University to, to recover cases of, of racial violence in Texas from 1900 to 1930. So some of the work that we're doing is trying to, to find, looking through court records, looking through newspaper accounts, actually a fuller list. Um, my colleague, Trinidad Gonzalez, too, has been working on this for a long time, focusing on the year of 1915. But there's actually, a, you know, there's, there's thousands of, of records um but you know it could easily be hundreds of of records for one legal case um and so there there are i found dozens of cases that were filed by families for example in the general claims commission mm -hmm. um but but it is a small percentage especially if we're thinking about cases of of police violence um it's very rare to find a death certificate uh yeah. for example so it's we're still having to do a lot of work uh, of recovery to have a better sense of how many how many people uh, actually sought judicial recourse, testified, um, and but when we find those records, we we learn quite a bit. So one of the facets of work that's going on right now is some of this research. And as you write in the book, there is there is real power in being able to give names to victims. And to be able to understand more about who these people are, whether or not their descendants are with us today or not, there, there's power in, in putting a name uh, and an identity to to someone who suffered like this. So I, that, that's, I hope that you guys do. I hope you find 
and are able to identify a lot of this. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the other groups? People that are working in different ways to address this. Yeah, so there are still descendants. There are people who I write about in the book who you know are part of the chapters in the early parts of the book and throughout. Um, who have been trying to make these histories public. So they are members of families who for, have shared and preserved these histories from generation to generation. And so they have private archives and they've built memorials and memorialize these histories on their own. Um, but they made blogs and websites as well. They're trying blogs, to really put it out there. Written poetry um, and actually done things like applied for state historical markers from the Texas Historical Commission. Um, but really, it isn't really until... Um, 2013 that we started seeing real momentum so i'm a, a me and my colleagues and refusing to forget it's a group of historians sonia hernandez trina gonzalez john Moran gonzalez and ben johnson started to to collaborate with descendants but also cultural institutions in texas uh namely the bullock museum the flagship texas state history museum um to curate an exhibit called life and death on the border to, to shine a light on this history, but also to recover the the names of people that were victims and people like JT Canales and Jovita Hidad who can who who tried to uh, who were agents of social justice in this era. Mm. Um, and we've worked with the state to successfully uh, with the Texas Historical Commission to su- successfully unveil four state historical markers uh, to commemorate. Uh, in particular cases like the Bobanid massacre or the the double murder of Jesus Bazan and Antonio Longoria. Uh, there's a historical marker up now for Hobidaidad. Um, and there's a marker in Cameron County uh, to commemorate La Matanza, which recognizes this period of racial terror, but also recognizes um, the the unknown victims, the victims who have yet to be named. Um yeah. And so there's a lot of it, some of the some of these markers were harder to have come to fruition than others. Um, I think that there are some staff members, both at the Bullock. I mean, the Bullock is has just shown exceptional leadership in being willing to have confront these difficult histories and make them public um, through their exhibitions or through their public programming. And I think the state. The Texas Historical Commission um, has some staff members who, with the, the this program called the Undertold Markers, are bringing uh, some of these histories to light, but also histories of anti-Black violence, of anti-Native violence. Um, and, and in the recent you know, year and a half, there's been some uh, efforts to, to slow that progress, um, but, but we're still moving forward. This might be the first Texas topic we've done on the podcast, which makes me feel a little sheepish. Um, <laughs> what kind of broader conclusions or things should the rest of us who don't live in South Texas or maybe live in places that don't have large Mexican-American communities, but uh, anywhere in the West you go, there is there is a history of violence there. So what would you say to the rest of us, non-Texans? Well, I think, you know, that the West is such a, a, a place where we have to look at how these histories of racial violence are interconnected, right? So I look at Texas as a place where you see the history of uh, colonization, of native genocide, of slavery intersecting. Um, and so it's it's something that, that when I study and write about, when I wrote about anti-Mexican violence in this first book, I kept finding, you know, Texas Rangers, 
or local law enforcement who had been in the military and learned these tactics from fighting quote unquote Apaches, you know, in, 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 uh, in, in these brutal, uh, acts of warfare, um, against different native nations. Um, and also U S soldiers that had fought during the Spanish American war in the Philippines. Um, so when we think about how these histories are interconnected, um, in some cases it's by thinking about how the aggressors themselves have participated in, in a series of, of, of eras of racial violence um, in different places um, under the, the name of you know, U.S. empire building or conquest or colonization. Um, but also that, that um, you know, we've really done, as historians, I think, too often segregated anti-Mexican violence, anti-Native violence, and anti-Black violence. Um, and so when I look at, at the end of this decade in 1919, for example, and see that, you know, this investigation, this call, uh, this congressional, Texas congressional investigation into the Texas Rangers revealed all of these crimes, but didn't call for the prosecutions of individual police. Um, you know, that the ending of that congressional hearing uh, also led into the summer, the red summer of red 1919. Summer, yeah. And so you have the governor um, calling for Texas Rangers then to participate in intimidating NAACP chapters, right? So on the one hand, you have this moment where there's an opportunity for the state to end this kind of racial brutality by police and to hold police accountable. And when they don't do that, then you see the police also being used to uh, commit acts of terror, you know, and, and of course, this isn't, you know, of course, these acts of terror against uh, black Texans had been ongoing. Um, but you see them also being used to intimidate uh, civil rights activists and anti lynching activists. Um, and then of course, this leads into uh, this this kind of racist policing, this anti-Mexican rhetoric also shapes immigration policy and, uh, you know, like the 1924 Immigration Act and the construction, the creation of the U.S.-Mexico Border Patrol. Um, and so I think it's important for us when we're thinking about histories of the West to show how these histories are actually interconnected, but also to show their impact on shaping the world that we live in today. Um, rather than just sort of just relegating it to the past. Yeah, the past is never a past, right? Right. It is, it's present, yeah. Well, uh, do you want to tell us anything about uh, what you're working on next before we, we wrap things up? Yeah, well, you know, I could just say that the, you know, I'm working with these students at Brown currently on this project called mm -hmm. Mapping Violence, and it tries to do this very thing, this active recovery, um, but also showing... Uh, by by recovering cases of anti-Mexican violence, anti-Black, anti-Native, and anti-Asian violence in Texas in the early 20th century, um, and using digital tools to actually make that data visible and publicly accessible. Is so there a website live yet, or is there's in, a there's the a works? there is a website live where you can see like a sample map with just okay. a selected number of cases. Um, but what we're also what we're already realizing is that. Um, these histories intersected. They were not segregated geographically or temporally. And in some cases, you had the same agents of violence traveling to different parts of the state committing these acts of violence 
Um, and it's also a, 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 an effort not only in recovering cases of racial violence, um, examples of people who fought the injustice, but also keeping records of different police, judges, uh, authorities who participated in these acts, um, which reveals uh, a different part of that history, too. I encourage our listeners to pick up your book, also to go to this website, mappingviolence.com. And you know, I'll be watching there to see as you guys add new things. Yeah. I think it's incredibly important work. Well, thank you so much. And I really enjoyed this conversation and, and look forward to continuing the dialogue. Great. Thanks so much, Monica. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave a review on whatever app or platform you're using or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Wright Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and put that link in the episode description if you didn't catch it. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critiques my way. I'm Associate Director of the Red Center and an Associate Professor of History at Brigham Young University. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. You can find out more on my website, bwrensink.org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. That's B-R-E-N-D-E-N-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K. One last plug, if you live in the Intermountain West, check out the Red Center's digital public history project, Intermountain Histories, by visiting intermountainhistories.org, or by downloading the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and mobile app, you can read carefully curated about complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Well, until next month, be well, be curious, be kind.